So for those of you who are new this year, as we're beginning a new program year, I just want to say welcome. This is the kind of Bible study that you can drop in and drop out of. So, um, but please don't drop out, drop out. But if you miss a week, don't worry about it because we are, we are taping them. So you can even find them online on our website under other classes. Now, I'm not saying that to discourage you from coming because you'll get a lot more from being here in person. But if you're out of town and you miss, don't worry about it. And don't let it keep you from coming back and jumping right back in. Um, so, and then the other thing is we've been in the Gospel of John since before I got here. I'm Deborah Layton. Many of you know I got to the Advent last October. So, um, and I arrived and this Bible study was already in the Gospel of John. And I thought, oh joy, I'm not going to change that one bit because I love John and I love um, studying John and, and teaching from John. So this is a great thing. Um, but now, when did you all start with John 1? Was that maybe two years ago? We, we I know, that's what I thought. I thought it was back there. And so, um, so, so now we're finally in John 11, finally, I say. Um, and so we're going to take a look at that. And I just... Do you all from last year remember how much I like that whiteboard? I see it lurking over here. So if I have a volunteer to help me, because it's going to kill me if I try to do it myself. Great. Thank you. Tell me your name again. Catherine. Thank you. And it actually works a little better if you just lift it up just a smidge. Yeah, because it just. Thank you. Yeah, it is. I know it is. Thank you. I couldn't help myself. I saw it over there and I thought, oh, it's close enough to get to use it. Thank you, Catherine. And so the other thing I'd like to just sort of tell you as we um, get started is that one of the things I started last January was that um, as a way of entering into Scripture and um, beginning to study Scripture, I thought we'd look at this passage from Isaiah 55, which is a great few verses, and these few verses are things that we say on Sunday mornings. So you might, um, they're in one of the canticles that we use for morning prayer. And this passage from Isaiah uses some imagery that talks right about the Word of God. The Word of God being that Word going forth from the, uh, the Father's mouth, from Yahweh's mouth. And um, that in fact, that word, as we know, is the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so the word going forth from the Father's mouth and accomplishing his purposes and returning to him is a great way for understanding the whole of the book of John. Because we see at the very beginning of John 1, John um, talks about Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so that's language that John himself uses of Jesus to describe Jesus. So um, let's say these verses together as a, as a kind of prayer, and then I'll pray. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 
And so, Lord, now we ask that you would indeed send forth your word, that as we study your written word, your holy scripture, that you would draw us ever closer, um, ever deeper in relationship with you, that you would open up our eyes to the truth of your your word, which is in fact your Lord, uh, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So that um, as we study, Lord, we ask, draw us nearer, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. And we ask this for your glory's sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd just like to start out, before we look, I'm just going to give you, you have an outline on your, on your. Um, by the way, also, if you haven't been in a Bible study here, they lift weights over uh, on the other side of this wall, and the wall's not very thick. So if you hear, you know, they're, uh, <laughs> we're going to do some mental lifting. Um, so first of all, a little one quick word on why do we do what we do in Bible study? Why do Bible study? You might think, well, Deborah, we're here. We know why you do Bible study. But one of the things that we're going to be doing is that essentially during this time, you know how have you ever been out? Um, have you? I'm sure every one of us has looked up at the sky here in Birmingham and looked at the stars on a starry night and enjoyed seeing all the bright stars in the sky and looking out and seeing the familiar constellations and saying, oh, look, there's the Big Dipper or the Little Dipper or Orion or Cassiopeia's chair. Those are the only ones I know. So those are the ones I always look for. Um, so isn't that an amazing experience to get to do that? And, um, and yet, how much more do we see when we end up um, somewhere in the country where there aren't as many lights around us that are distracting from the stars? And you go outside in the country and there's not another light around, and you turn off the lights in the house, and you look up, and <laughs> I know it's so funny, and you see so many more of those stars. You see not only the bright ones, but you see the dimmer ones. And I love that, that in the city, the starry night looks two-dimensional almost. It almost looks like it could be a flat piece of paper with just these little dots, connect the dots. But once you get out into the country and there are no other lights, you look up, and isn't it as though things pop out and things become three-dimensional? And you see so much more. You can see the Milky Way. You can see just this um, it almost looks as though you're looking into a geode and there's sparkles everywhere, sparkles all throughout the sky. And so I think of Bible study like that, that Bible study is getting us out of the city, getting us into the word deeper so that we see not just the bright constellations of interpretation that we're used to seeing, but we have all of this background that we see as well. And so the meaning that is still there, that's always there in scripture, um, we the Lord brings it to our mind so much more. We see the fullness and the richness of it when we study and we dig a little deeper in scripture. And so that's essentially what we're going to be doing on Friday mornings. We're going to get out into the countryside, you know, get out our goggles and look up and just see all of the different things going on and then the bright stars of meaning uh, that are, you know, God's messages for us through Scripture. So um, on that note, let's get started. And I'm for those of you who have been tracking um, with this study for the last couple years, you'll know where we are in John, but I'm going to give us a quick overview of John. So um, and if you want something that's going to be even more in-depth, you can go back to, um, if you went online and you listened to the January classes last year, you'd hear 
even more of a review. But this, we're going to just look at three different things um, that help provide the context. And for any of you who were at the women's retreat this last month in August, you'll remember um, the speaker, Erica Moore, was one of my seminary professors at Trinity. And she is famous for having the motto, context is king. That when you're looking at scripture and trying to understand it, you need to know the context that you're working with. And so we're just going to give a little bit of context here for the Gospel of John and a little bit of context within John so that when we look at John 11, um, we can understand it more deeply. So looking at the context, does anybody know what I mean when I say that first? Um, and don't worry if you're new, I'm not going to, I'm, well, I may or may not, I'm only asking for volunteers. I won't call on anyone today. Um, it, but as you look at that first phrase, those first two phrases, the book of signs and the book of glory. Does anybody remember from last year what that might be referring to? Yeah. And so John really purposefully goes through and marks out all the different signs. That's right. And he's giving us these clues along the way to say there's this special relationship between John the writer and his audience. And he is specifically trying to bring us as we read or listen to, because not everyone had a written Bible, um, and certainly the first hearers of the Gospel of John didn't have a written Bible. But when they... Um, when we, <laughs> I won't let it distract me if you don't let it distract you. Um, but when they would listen and hear, they would, um, they would. Oh, thank you, Elizabeth. They do. I think they've forgotten that we've been meeting. Yeah, just, just, just tell them we're meeting. Thank you. I know that is sweet. It's good. Um, so the signs, basically, you see them throughout um, throughout John's gospel, and they are essentially like John's little clues because he wants to draw us up in deeper. He wants us to know more about who Jesus is because then when you know who Jesus is, what he does makes so much more sense and hits it home. Um, wh what would it mean if it, it would be a tragedy if any mere human were to die the death that Jesus died. Um, and John is showing us there's more to this than just a tragic death. In fact, it ends in a glorious resurrection and it began in this humbling of himself where the word became flesh and became incarnate. Um, so he's looking at all of that and he's saying there's much more to Jesus than meets the eye. And so the signs, so the signs are this word that that John uses for um, to describe Jesus' miracles, especially in the other three Gospels. And you'll notice Matthew, Mark, and Luke are different. Sorry, I know I'm doing that. You know, um, you know my fellow Richard always says, don't ever quote Greek ever, 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 because it makes, it makes you feel like you know what you're talking about. So even if you don't. So I'll just erase it. There, there we go. That's the word. Um, but what's different about it is that in um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't use the same word as John to describe the miracles of Jesus. In John, John uses not just the word powerful works, mighty deeds. He doesn't use those words that describe what's actually, you know, the event of, yes, someone was just healed from being blind or um, someone was crippled and now they are no longer crippled. What John does is he calls them signs, that they're signs that are not just this wonderful miracle, but rather they're like a road sign. 
Um, they are not the thing themselves. And he's saying this to get people to come further. If you were to um, drive to Birmingham and you saw the road sign to Birmingham and you stopped when you got to the road sign and you said, all right, I'm here, Birmingham, you'd be in Tuscaloosa or wherever you'd be. You wouldn't be in Birmingham. You'd be at the road sign to Birmingham. And that's one of the things that John is keen on pointing out to us as we read the gospel is that these signs, these miraculous things that Jesus did are um, meant to point to his identity so that we can then look to the biggest thing, the biggest sign of all, which is the crucified and risen Lord. So looking at that, there's an arbitrary way of dividing up the Gospel of John. It's not so arbitrary because a lot of commentators like to do this, but to look at John in two halves, we would look at John 1 through 11 and then John 12 through 21. John 1 through 11 talks about everything leading up to that last week of Jesus' life. So John 1 through 11 takes 33 years. And then John 12 through 21 takes one week. And time slows down as Jesus comes to Jerusalem and prepares to go to Calvary. And that's really important to notice that, that speeding up of time and then that slowing down of time. And, of course, we don't have all 33 years described in those first 11 chapters. Rather, we have a discussion of Jesus' birth that's very theological in chapter 1. And we have this privileged information as readers of John's gospel that his disciples don't have. We have this information about Jesus being the word that was with God in the beginning before the world was created. And then the word that left the Father in heaven and became, um, became human, was born as a baby in Bethlehem. And then we see in his ministry, in chapters, um, beginning in chapter 1 and going through chapter 11, we see seven different signs that John is picking out and saying, drawing our attention to seven, just seven of these signs. And this is what commentators um, look at as a way of understanding what's going on and pointing to Jesus. And what we'll find is that in chapter 11, we're going to deal with the last and the greatest sign, the seventh sign. And seven is an important number. That's why they pick it and say, oh, maybe there are seven signs. And there are different places where the word sign is used to describe what Jesus is doing. So um, we see that at the wedding in Cana, which is in chapter 2, verse 11. We see it at the cleansing of the temple, even, which is in 2.18. We see it at the healing of the centurion's son, which is in chapter 4. We see it at the healing of the pool of Bethesda, or after. We see it at the feeding of the 5,000. We see it at the, um, he the healing of the blind man. And then the seventh and the greatest sign is the raising of Lazarus. And that's where the same word is used to describe what Jesus is doing and how what Jesus is doing reveals to us who he is. 
So when I put on your sheet that first phrase, book of signs and book of glory, what I'm doing is helping us divide down the text. When you look at a big piece of um, scripture, like all of John's gospel, just breaking it down and looking at it and saying, well, this is a way, this is a way of understanding this large work of scripture. So often we take verses out and we say, here's a really meaningful verse to me. But when you put it in context, there's so much meaning within the context, within the beauty of the story being told by John, the beauty of the way he's presenting the truth about Jesus breathtaking when you read it and that's one of the reasons why if you were here in the spring I encourage you to read the whole thing as much as you can in one sitting and I know that sounds strange but because you see things that you don't see when you're focused in on one or two verses Um, so there we go there are the seven signs for the first half of the book of John and that we'll say is chapters 1 through 11 The second half, and I won't go very much into this, we'll start to look at this in the coming weeks and even in the next semester, but in John 12 through 21, as I said, we we look at one week in the life of Jesus, the last week of his life. And the reason why um, many commentators call it the book of glory is because in John, Jesus' death, which we would think of as a low point, in someone's life. And even if you were to look at, um, so I'm going to just, woo, that signs glory. If you were to look at Philippians 2, there's uh, this wonderful hymn that the Apostle Paul wrote, or that he quotes in his um, letter to the Philippians. And he talks about Jesus, who had equality with God, who started out up here in heaven, um, was with God, Uh, before the creation of the world, who gave everything up and went low, humbled himself, went low, 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 low to be born as a baby, and then to suffer and to die on the cross. And there's that sense of the lowest point in Jesus' life. And in any other story, as I said, in any other story, the death of Jesus is a tragedy. But in the Christian story, it's not... It's not the end of the story, is it? It's the low point, but from there, or it's a sad moment, but from there when we understand why Jesus died and what his death means for us, it is in fact a good news. And that's the point where things totally change and turn around. So if that's the way, um, the way St. Paul would describe the death and then the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus as going low and then being exalted, one of the things that's different about the way John describes it is that when he talks about Jesus being raised up on the cross, he literally talks about it as exaltation. Just the way we, we talk about praise and glory having this aspect of lifting up the name of God. When we worship, there's this sense of taking everything we have here and raising it and lifting it to God and saying, you take it. All I have, you take it. Take my voice as I'm singing to you in church. Take my heart take um, my family, take my job, take my money, take whatever, your money, Um, take it all. It's yours. I give it to you. And so in that lifting up, that sense of lifting up, that's the language that John uses to describe Jesus lying on the cross, being lifted up and raised up and dying this death in this exalted position. And I think about this sometimes that, you know, the women at the foot of the cross were looking up at Jesus. 
he was raised up and exalted. And John is using that language every time he talks about the crucifixion. And it's different from, from the way Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the crucifixion. He talks about it as Jesus' glorification. That there in the moment of supreme sacrifice, his moment of, of um, most humility, his, his deepest humility, um, his death even on a cross, is, a, is the moment where he is glorified. And isn't that how we worship him? We worship him as the crucified and risen Lord. And um, so that's why this is called the book of glory. And all throughout, we'll look at some of the verses in another week that show John talking about Jesus's death as glory, glorification, and not the kind of glory, obviously, that we think of when we hear about visions of the almighty God, not um, rainbows and sparkly gold and things that you can't even look at because they're so bright and light. No, this is um, a reverse kind of glory, a glory in humility. And that is, that is the God we serve and the God we love, one who has humbled himself. Um, so we'll look at the book of glory, but that's a way of describing the second half of the book of John. Now, I took a little bit of time on that first one. Don't worry, we'll go faster through the other ones. But do you have any questions about that semi-arbitrary way of breaking down the book of John's structure and understanding what's going on so that as you are in any point on the timeline of the book of John, you can look around and say, well, we've just come through six of the signs, which is where we are today. We've just come through six of the signs that reveal things about who Jesus is, and we're looking towards the future, which means that um, in very soon, Jesus is going to go to Calvary. Any questions about that? Yeah, here I can. And, and, uh, the beloved yeah. disciple, and for that reason, his love for Jesus shines in his book. It really does. It's so beautiful. It's um, and And you think John was the latest gospel written. And I really do think a lot of people think that John had access to the other gospels that were written and that um, he also is an eyewitness. And, you know, he was one of the disciples, one of the 12 disciples, just like Peter was. And um, at least part of uh, certainly most of Matthew and Mark and Luke, parts of Luke are based on Peter's testimony, Peter's eyewitness testimony. John is giving a little, it's the same Jesus. And in some of the events are the exact same events, but he gives us more information. He gives us different events, and we also see it through his eyes. That sounded like it was falling on our head, didn't it? Um, so that second, it's we're looking at the um, we're looking at it through John's eyes. And you're right; he he he's, he loves him so much. He's loved by him, and he loves him. And you also see just a different personality. You know, the, the deep theological truths and the beauty of the deep theological truths form John so much. Um, you just see them in his gospel. Thank you. Any other questions? Okay. We'll go quickly through John as eyewitness. Uh, and I start, started to touch on that just now, that in John's gospel, we have a different eyewitness of Jesus. And you know how if there is um, a car accident and the news reporters ask three different people what happened, they are going to get they're going to get three different answers. They're going to get most things in common, but someone standing over there might have seen something that someone standing over there didn't see, and someone over there might have been distracted and thought they saw one thing and they didn't see one thing. 
Um, and yet what we have in scripture, we do have multiple eyewitnesses. And what we have is, um, so sometimes we see different things presented and we have to reconcile them and understand, you know, it is, we might see a little bit of difference and yet it's the word of God. We trust that. And we also see that um, it can be helpful to see the slightly different perspective. And so one of the things that we're going to see in the next several weeks is that with, um, with, wow, they have a dog. I know, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I know, they did have the boom box last year. You're right. Thank you, Trudy. Did they say, is it really that loud? Did they say, yeah. Can we all go over there? Yeah, we can hear everything. Well, it makes you wonder if they can hear us. Like, do you think they can hear me? I couldn't hear you. I could hear a little, like, faint voice, but no, I couldn't hear you. And they have a little bit of music going on anyway, so I don't think they can hear us. Oh, well, Lord bless them. The man who were working out were very pleasant. The owner, I guess, has been approached before by... Thank you for going on our behalf. Well, there we go. We'll, we'll just leave it at that. Um, so John is an eyewitness, and P- Peter, as I said, Peter's eyewitness testimony has shaped the other Gospels. Uh, but one of the things that we're going to see leading up to Jesus's um, approach to Calvary is that the straw that breaks the camel's back as far as the religious leaders are concerned, is going to be different. We see a different picture in John than what we see in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And does that mean that they aren't both true? No, I think both things were really strong objections that they had to Jesus's ministry. But one of the things that you'll see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, does anybody know what the straw that breaks the camel's back is? What makes them say, that's it, this man has got to go. We cannot have him doing this kind of thing. That's one of the things. I mean, we could, if we were to chart, we were to, you know, write up, and in a couple weeks, you know, we we can do this when we get closer to Jesus's trial, is to say what were the, what were the charges that he was accused of, and that's definitely one of them. Okay, that is definitely one of them. And you remember, do you remember, in chapter, in chapter five, it, it'll be this this dry erase board will be my downfall, won't it? <laughs> I like it too much. Um, the in chapter 5, do you remember this? We were looking at this last year. Chapter 5, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And if you turn, if you le- you know, turn to chapter 5, verse 18, does someone want to read that? Exactly. Does someone want to go to chapter 8, verse um, 59? We'll do this now. Chapter 8, verse 59, even though I put it lower down on your, on your outline.
great. So here we hear a you know, we hear in 518, they're tr seeking to kill him because he's healed on the Sabbath. Now we hear Jesus say directly, why was what Jesus said so offensive? I am is Yahweh. Yes. And the name that he gave to Moses. Right. So God's name that he gave to Moses in Exodus is I am who, you know, I am. That's just it. It's the verb to be. And so it, within um, Judaism, they had gradually not, not used that verbal construction. You could not say, I, I am, because it would be blasphemy, because that's God's name. And there was also this sense in which they would change where it was written in their written scriptures, um, just because even writing it, they felt like, would be blasphemy. So for Jesus to out and out say that, and he wouldn't have, he would have probably said it in Aramaic, which would be close enough to the ancient Hebrew. Aramaic is a version of kind of like a dialect of Hebrew. So when he says, I am, <laughs> I mean, they literally pick up stones right there to stone him. And they believe that they're obeying the law. In the Old Testament law, it says you must stone anyone who blasphemes against the Lord. Um, and so they believe that they're obeying the law. And we're going to see, you know, in the next several months, actually, whenever we get to John 19, that that's part of their tragedy. They believe that they're doing. They believe that they're obeying God by um, by arresting Jesus and crucifying him. Um, so um, he says that he's greater than Abraham. There's another one in chapter 10, verse 31. Does someone want to read that? Chapter 10, verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles in the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Can you read the next verse for us too, Betsy? <laughs> we are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Great. Thank you. Um, then if someone wants to turn, and not everyone needs to, but if someone turns to Luke 19, verse 28, we'll get a picture of what the Synoptic Gospels are saying. Yeah, that's. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, "Go into oh. the village." No. Yeah, no. Sorry, that's not it. That's my bad. Um, sorry. It's um, stay right there, though, Liz. And can you read 1947? This is after he cleanses the temple. And remember, he drives money changers out of the temple, and he says, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his word. So we see that in Luke's gospel, they're seeking to kill him, and that the last thing that, that he does that really makes them angry is that he cleanses the temple. 
and he talks about the temple being destroyed. Remember his saying, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days? And he's not talking about the earthly temple of Herod. He's talking about the temple of his own body. But that saying of his was one of the things that they accuse him for before Pilate and before the chief priests. They say, um, this man um, said, spoke against our, temp- our temple and our holy place. Um, and so that is the real, that is clarified, you know, in the other three Gospels, that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest charge against Jesus is that he commits blasphemy, but he commits it by speaking against the temple. But in John's Gospel, um, sorry to do all of this flipping back and forth, but if you look at John 11, and if you were to go to um, John 11 and then... Um, We're beginning at verse 45, and what we'll see, we won't um, read any of those verses, but what happens is that people from the raising of Lazarus, in chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. That's what we're looking at in these next several weeks, next two weeks, actually. Uh, Don't be scared. Um, In the next two weeks, we're looking at Lazarus. And that what happens after Lazarus is raised from the dead is that people go to the authorities and they say, they tell him them what he's done, and the authorities say, they throw up their hands and they say, that's it. If we don't do something about this man, then um, everybody's following him, and the Romans are going to come and take away our temple. They're going to take away the ruling authority from us and give it to someone else. And um, so they say, we have to arrest and get rid of this man because all of the people are following him. They're afraid that Rome is going to see it as an uprising, all of the people that are going after Jesus. And the reason why they're going after Jesus is because of Lazarus. So the difference in John is that Lazarus and the raising of Lazarus, I can't even spell it, is um, the straw that breaks the camel's back. And that's something that we see from John's eyewitness account that we don't hear about from Peter's eyewitness account in the other Gospels. Um, And so when we looked at all of these verses about different people Um, about the religious authorities threatening to arrest Jesus, threatening to kill Jesus. What, what, have you ever noticed that before in scripture, that these arrests and death attempts are all throughout? It took me a little while before I realized how often they're happening throughout scripture. So that when you see Jesus actually being arrested and tried and killed, you think, wow, that, I'm amazed it didn't happen sooner when you think about it that way. It's a miracle that it didn't happen sooner. And you even see that. I'm going to put down for you John uh, Luke 4 to look at some other time. If you look at Luke 4, Jesus is preaching in the synagogue at Nazareth. And he preaches about the Gentiles being brought into the people of God. And the people in Nazareth are so offended that they bring him out and they take him to the cliff that the town is built on. And they try to throw him off the cliff. They're so upset. And, what, and Jesus just walks right through them. It says that he, Luke just said, he walked right through them and went on to do whatever. And you see that in what we just read from chapter 8 and chapter 10 in John. Jesus just, they cannot touch him until it's the right time. And that's one of the things that you see in John's gospel, that John talks about language. And this is the third point in that first little bit. John talks about language, and he talks about language in such a, or talks, his language about time is something important for us. Because The way he talks about time, he's showing us that 
Um, it is God's will and a part of God's purpose for Jesus to die the death that he died, that it was no accident and that Christians who believe in him and follow him are, are um, not following, some, following someone who died an uh, ignominious death. I can't even say that word. But they're not following someone who died um, a horrible death and who is a shameful person. Rather, that he is the son of God. And so there is a sense in which his death is a part of God's purpose. And John is trying to show this. And he shows it by the way he uses time. Does anybody remember what we've talked about in here about time before? It's okay if you haven't. There are two kinds of time in the Bible. Oh, whoops. Does anyone know what, when you think of chronology, what do you think of? Exactly, Gordon. I think of a timeline. I think of like, first this happened, then this. I love timelines when they have them in books and you get to see, you know, history. Okay, oh, that happened first. Then that happened. Oh, and you put it all on a timeline and it makes sense. That's chronology. Kairos time is... Um, the word in scripture used for um, the time and God's timing. It can be translated um, the appointed time, the fulfillment of time. When we see um, Jesus being born of Mary, Mary, it's called um, at the fullness of time in the fullness of time, at the right time, in the appointed time. There's this sense in which God's timing is always the right timing because it's a part of his sovereign plan. He is good, he is sovereign, he is faithful, and he makes things happen according to his plan and his timing. And so when we look at Jesus' death, we have to say, you know, people were saying, well, is your God sovereign? Because look, you know, Jesus died. He's not in control, and yet God is in control of the events of Jesus' life. God is in control of the events of our lives. And so when we look at Jesus' death, what we're going to see in John 11 is that Jesus, when he, when he goes to Bethany to raise Lazarus, he knows that he is going to his own death because the raising of Lazarus is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And so he sets his face towards Bethany, and it is just the same as him setting his face toward the cross. He is, when he goes to Bethany, willingly giving up his own life, because he knows that it is the right time. It is the appointed time, or that the appointed time is drawing near. So keep that in mind. We're going to read through... John 11 verses 1 through 16 and the way we do this is just take a couple of verses and read them out and um, if you, and then and then just do two or three and give someone else a chance to read two or three and we'll go to verse 16 and I'll start us out with chapter 11 verse 1 now a certain man was ill Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness must not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going here again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Thus he spoke, and then he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sakes I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Thank you. That's great. We get a little teaser for next week because we're going to go into Martha and Mary. We're going to get to see Martha and Mary, and they're so lovely with Jesus. It's beautiful. And Jesus is so lovely with them. But in this first scene, we see that Jesus is not going down to Bethany immediately when he's called. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to ask, why is that the case? Um, first of all, let's just say, that, um, who remembers Mary and Martha from, uh, yeah, from Luke chapter 10? That's Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And that's the passage that we all know so well where we start to divide ourselves into Marys and Marthas. Oh, I'm a Mary. Oh, I'm a Martha. Well, I'll just, my little 30-second sermon on that is we're all called to be both. Done. <laughs> um, Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, we've heard about before. And Mary is also, um, he talks about Mary's fame. Mary's fame precedes the story for which she's famous. John does not tell us about Mary's anointing of Jesus at Bethany until the next chapter. But he alludes to it here, saying, oh, you know her. She's the one who anointed Jesus' feet. And so the people he's writing to had already heard that story. That story is famous. And so we think Martha might be the older sister, and it'd be normal to say Martha and Mary, but Mary's more famous, so we say Mary and Martha. Um, but we'll, we'll look into that in a couple of weeks when we look at the anointing in Bethany. But suffice it to say that these three are beloved of Jesus. Lord, the one whom you love is sick, is the message that's sent to Jesus. And that's not a message that's super explicit, is it? They're not saying, we want you to come and heal him. They're saying, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Come and see him. I've received a lot of, um, one of the things that's different for me about um, the culture I grew up in and coming to Birmingham is that I've discovered that um, it's, more, it's more the norm here to set out 
um, to ask something without actually asking it. <laughs> so I've gotten in trouble here because a couple days after meeting with someone, I'll realize, oh, they want me to do this, but they didn't tell me that. So how am I going to know that that's what they want me to do? I'm supposed to read between the lines. Well, Jesus here is supposed to read between the lines and hightail it down to Bethany for those that he loves. And um, so, but he doesn't. We're going to look into that. Um, he also has this cryptic saying that he says to his disciples about day and night. We're not going to look at Jeremiah 13, 16, but you can go home and look at it. It's a great verse. And we think that Jesus is actually quoting from that verse when he talks about stumbling during the night and how during the day you won't stumble because you see the light. Um, well, he is using that verse, Jeremiah 13, to um, allude to himself as the light of the world, which is something he's already said twice. He said that in chapter 8, verse 12, and he also said that in chapter 9, verse 5. Jesus is the light of the world, and he's saying that there is a certain amount of time. There are 12 hours in the day. Here we go, back to time. There is a right time for God's purposes in his life especially, but in even every single one of our lives. And he's saying, don't worry about going back to Judea. I know you're all afraid of being killed or me being killed. He's saying that to his disciples. They don't want him to go back, do they? Lord, don't go. And he's saying, it's okay. There are 12 hours in the day and it's not the 12th hour yet. It is not yet quite time for the light of the world to be extinguished. The 11th hour perhaps, but not the 12th hour. And so, um, and then he's saying, we have to go now. We're going to go. There's work to be done during the day. The light is still here. The light of the world is still here. We're going to go and do this work. Um, any questions about that? That's a little bit of it. Jesus has many of these cryptic sayings in Scripture, and especially in John's Gospel. And you think, what are you talking about, Jesus? And isn't it amazing to see he's quoting Scripture and then using that to answer their implicit concern? We don't want to die just yet, Jesus. He's saying, it's okay. It's not time. Any questions about that? That's sort of a footnote for you. Okay. Um, so does Jesus, Jesus have a death wish? You hear pessimistic Thomas saying, let us also go that we may die with him. That's very optimistic that they would stick around long enough to die with Jesus because we know that when Jesus is arrested, the disciples scatter. Um, but I think of Thomas, that last thing he says in verse 16, kind of like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Oh, we'll go die with him. <laughs> you know, well, I guess we'll go back to Judea. I guess if we have to go, we'll go. I know, the doubter. He actually believes that, yeah, they'll die. Yeah, he's having the courage to say, well, let's go. But I think it's also a pessimistic courage. Oh. Um, so all of that to say we're getting to the big question of this passage and you know I'm not going to go into the pattern of misunderstanding but you can guess there are patterns of misunderstanding throughout John's gospel this is another footnote so bear with me for a minute patterns of misunderstanding where people say misunderstand Jesus and take what he's saying literally can anybody think of one there's a famous one in chapter 3 of John with Nick at night Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and Jesus says you must be born again and Nicodemus says and we're sitting here while he's saying it, Nicodemus says 
should one enter his mother's womb again and be born? And Jesus, we're saying, as we hear him say that, we're like, no, he's talking figuratively. Nicodemus, he's not talking about literal rebirth. He's talking about figurative, spiritual rebirth. But what happens is that when we hear Nicodemus saying something kind of silly like that, we incline more and we say, no, no, you're not getting it. And we get involved and we start to interact with it more. And then we're ready to hear what Jesus says. And it's a teaching point after that. We're ready to listen and hear. The same thing happens at the well in chapter 4. Jesus meets the Samaritan woman and he tells her about the water that he has to give her. The water that will give her um, eternal life. She will never thirst again. And she says, Lord, give me this water. And she's talking about, she's saying, fill up my jugs now. I want you to fill my jugs right now. He's saying, no, no, no. And he uses that as a teaching point. And we, as we're hearing it, we're saying, he's not talking about literal water. And the same thing here when the disciples say, well, if he's sleeping, that's good. He'll get better. And we're saying, no, he died. And Jesus says, no, he died. We're going to go. We're going to go and wake him up. And Jesus is even using that term for sleep that we use as Christians. Um, You see it in the later books of the New Testament that once we have this idea of the resurrection in our minds, then we realize that death for those who believe in Jesus is no permanent situation, but it's rather like sleep. Just like this sleep for Lazarus, this death that Lazarus experiences is temporary and not permanent. Um, So um, going into um, the big question, the big question in this whole passage as we're preparing and anticipating the resurrection, we're preparing for and anticipating the resurrection of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We have to ask ourselves, why does Jesus stay where he is? It says that Jesus stayed where he was for another couple of days. So the sisters sent to him and Jesus heard and he says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glory, uh, glorified in it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why does he stay? Why does he not drop everything to go and heal Lazarus from his sickness? Yeah, it is Kairos versus Kronos. He is waiting for him to die. Although, if you look at the chronology, to look at the chronology of the passage, when we get to verse 17, it's been four days that Lazarus was dead. And we know that where Jesus was was about a day's journey away from where Lazarus is. So the messenger left Bethany and went to Jesus. That's one day. Jesus could have left right then and gone back. But we think that Lazarus must have died right after the messenger left for it to be four days, for Jesus to wait two more days. So that's one day of travel for the messenger, two days of staying for Jesus, and one day of travel for Jesus makes four days by the time Jesus gets there. He knows that Lazarus has already died. So that's the first thing. Why does Jesus tarry? And this is a question that we ask ourselves probably every moment of our lives. I think every one of us is waiting on Jesus for something. So I'd ask you today, what is it that you are waiting on Jesus for? It might be that you're waiting on a diagnosis, or that you're waiting on the doctors to get it together, or that you're waiting on healing, or that you're waiting on an answer to a prayer. 
or that you're waiting on a loved one to get sober or that you're waiting for the right person to marry or that you're waiting for um, waiting for what else could it be that you're waiting for waiting for something to break through waiting for something interesting to happen we're always waiting for something interesting to happen we're waiting we're waiting for Jesus as Christians we're waiting for Jesus to come back you know he ascended into heaven and said he'd be back soon and then you see at the end of Revelation too that he had to tell those first Christians through Revelation and through prophecy through John no he really is coming soon don't worry Jesus is coming back soon and that's still 2,000 years ago and we have to say Lord, what is your timing like? 2,000 years, my goodness. And this is often what I pray when I'm thinking about God's timing and I'm saying, why is your timing so different than my timing? I know you say soon, but you're eternal. And could you just give me a soon that's a little more relative to my temporal, human, mortal nature? Can you give me soon like like two years? That'd be good. I could do with two years. Um, so God's sense of timing is different than our sense of timing. This, the other thing, God knows more about the situation that we're in than we know. Jesus knows that Lazarus has already died. Um, in that day and age, uh, it was believed, and we think it's believed because we see it in later Jewish writings, rabbinic writings, that um, it was believed that the soul stayed near the dead body for three days, kind of hovered around, and didn't didn't go off wherever the souls of the dead go. And so there's this belief that three days, if, it, if someone, it wouldn't be so bad to bring someone back from the dead after three days. That could be done. But four days, the soul is already gone. To raise someone after four days, that was a real miracle. That was really incredibly amazing. And we see in verse 17, it takes four days before Jesus gets there. He's waiting, he's tarrying. And that fourth day will help people see who he is. Lazarus has already died. Um, so he can't heal him. He's going to have to raise him. And he's going to raise him in a way that people will come to believe in him. And that there will be not just the life of the person that he raised from the dead, but new spiritual life in those who are going to believe in Jesus because of what he's done. And so when we ask, why does Jesus tarry? The other question we say is, does he love us if he doesn't give us what we want? He loved Lazarus. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. It's so clear. John says this kind of lo- talks about this kind of love in such a way he doesn't talk about it about anyone else except about himself. Um, <laughs> but he, Jesus loved these three disciples of his. And so his lack of action on their behalf was not lack of love. So that for us, when we're asking Jesus, when, why do you tarry? It's not because he doesn't love us. Um, And then, so there's that sense in which Jesus loves us. Jesus um, knows more than we know. He has more information. He is working on God's timeline, not our timeline. And then there is this secondary effect, and I don't think this is the first thing in God's purposes, in his plan. He's not saying, well, I'm going to let them suffer because it's really good. He's not, because in in his plan, suffering doesn't exist in God's plan. He doesn't want it to exist. He didn't intend. I mean, he's going to deal with the fact that when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, so too did sickness and suffering and death. 
That was not what God wanted for us. It was not what he had in mind. And so there's a sense in which that comes upon us, even if it's not a one-to-one ratio. And that's, um, you know, sin and sickness and illness and um, the pain and suffering of this life are not things um, that are necessarily consequences for our individual actions. They're a result of sin being in the world. Sometimes they are, but they are, but they're not always. They're a result of sin being in the world, and that is not the way God desires for the world to be. And one day it will no longer be like that. But through sometimes the trials and struggles of this life, we find that God refines us and he uses us to draw us away from earthly loves, from the things that we would desire to obsess over instead of turning to God, the crutches that are in fact um, no good use for helping us to walk, the things that we rely on that are um, that are not our Lord God, our good Lord. Um, so I, I offer to you this quote from J.C. Ryle. Sickness and suffering is no sign that God is displeased with us. No more, it is generally sent for the good of our souls. It tends to draw our affections away from this world and to direct them to things above. It sends us to our Bibles and teaches us to pray better. It helps to prove our faith and patience and shows us the real value of our hope in Christ. And then he says, let us believe that the Lord Jesus loves us when we are sick, no less than when we are well. And isn't that our question when we're suffering, when we're waiting, when we're asking God and there's no answer and he's tarrying and we want to shake heaven, do you still love me? Have you abandoned me? And the answer is no. Lazarus is as beloved to Jesus as we are. And we see in this story, and we'll see it next week, he is um, working on our behalf even when we cannot see it. And so that is an act of faith to believe that he loves us and that he is working on our behalf even though we can't see it. And so what do we do? How do we remember that in the midst of that feeling abandoned? We look to the cross. We look to that center of our faith. We look to the bedrock, that, that thing that we can look to always and say, God loves us so much that he would send Jesus even to die, to die on a cross, to redeem us from sin, to forgive us from our sins, to heal our sick bodies. One day they will be healed even if they, we don't see the healing today. The healing will happen at the end of all things when our bodies are raised by faith in Jesus. He sends to bring reconciliation in relationships and reconciliation with God. And that is the bedrock of our faith. So we look back. Uh, we look to the future by looking back to the past and our past in Jesus Christ. So that wherever we are, whatever we're waiting for, whatever we're asking God for and wondering when he's going to hear our plea, hear our cry and answer us and come, we know he loves us and he knows. He knows about what's going on with us, and he will answer in his timing. So let's pray, and then you can ask me some questions. So dear Lord God, I ask for each one of us. We we are probably each waiting for something, um, and you know exactly what it is. You know exactly the, that prayer that is the prayer that's always on our lips and always on our hearts. You know what that prayer is, and we, we pray it to you right now. We each pray it to you quietly, and we just say, hear us. We know that you hear us. 
We trust you even though we don't see the answer. And so we ask that for each one of us that you would come alongside us, that you would be with us and point us to that deep truth of what it is that you have done for us so that we might have faith for this thing right now, for the things that will come at us each day. Visit us powerfully in your might, O Lord God, through Jesus Christ. Amen.